Hi, thank you for tuning in to the Finding Harmony podcast with me, your host, Harmony Slater. Hi, welcome to the Finding Harmony podcast. I'm your host, Harmony, and I'm here with Russell. Hello, everyone. He's the co-host. I did. I am now the co-host. Although he does most of the talking. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> and we are absolutely delighted today to have a very dear friend, a mentor, someone we look up to, and I think somebody that probably most of you know, at least by name, and that's Hamish Hendry. Hi, Hamish. How are you? Hey, Harmony. How are you doing? Good. It's so nice that you could join us. Cool. My my co-host is Scout, my dog. So occasionally, oh. she might bark <laughs> at a squirrel outside. But apart from that, well, just that would be a delightful. <laughs> uh, Harmony, it, for those who 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 have who are completely in the dark, could you introduce Hamish and and his position and and why he's so incredible and generous to have on the on the on the podcast i think you have an introduction you want to say don't you well i i do <laughs> i i do but he's um would you call yourself director of ashtanga yoga london or yeah, founder I think, CEO? I think, I think that's the word we put on p- official pieces of paper you know and you have to sign if you know yeah. you've got to sign for somebody's passport or something yeah it is that but i'm, I'm okay. just i'm just the morning teacher really <laughs> but you've got the prime spot, though, right? I imagine. Yep, yep. Yeah, I have the I have the five a.m. spot, so that's uh, that's me. Okay. Well, I, I just I want to thank you, and I, for our, our audience, I want to thank Hamish for his singular nurturing presence in our community. Uh, London can be considered his town, his territory, though Hamish is so charming i forget to be intimidated of him at times uh when i when i moved to brighton i i was um which is just south of of london i uh i took great comfort in being able to call on him for guidance and i did often and it was very nurturing and i just want to say how uh, grateful i am that you you'd come on the show and we're we're so delighted to be able to share you uh with our audience and and maybe there's some things that your own flock might might learn i think that i, I think the idea of uh, of uh, mentoring i mean it's rather sort of unofficial but uh i think it's really important you know because um when you become a teacher whether you've done a teacher training or just ended up you know teaching um it's quite a lonely profession you know that you're sometimes you're in uh you're sort of, you know, trying to fight for classes with other people or you're trying to get more students. So there's, it's not always a, a, a smooth playing field, really. Um, and problems come up, you know. People, people have problems. And sometimes it's good to have somebody just to say, hey, what do I do with this? Um, you know, so I think that idea of, of, of teachers at least communicating with each other if not somebody who's, who's had... Just you know, more experience, I suppose, is really useful. Yeah, and I, I really um, admire you for that because you actually are somebody um, definitely in the UK that many, many teachers um, that I'm friends with and that I know they all really look to you as that mentor and as that guide. And it's, 
it's quite a unique um, position to be in where you can, I mean, you're just so generous with your time and your energy and, and helping uh, bring up uh, teachers that are a little bit younger than yourself, a little bit less experienced. I, th- I think it's, uh, I think that's really important. The, um, you know, knowledge is, you know, it's always equated with power. And I think it's uh, really important to be able to share the knowledge and, and the power as well, because um, trying to hold on to it yourself is, is uh, it's not going to work in the long term. Um, and uh, I think it's really important to, to support uh, young and upcoming um teachers uh, and I'm constantly amazed at how uh, how knowledgeable and how wise and and kind um, uh, young teachers are really I, I'm you know certainly when I when I was in my early 20s I was I was I was different mm. <laughs> how in what way um, I suppose I was a bit more self-obsessed um, <laughs> and um, you know, I, I did some drugs and, uh, yeah, I just wasn't, you know, I, I was just, yeah, I was mostly just thinking for myself, I suppose, really. Maybe that's just, um, that's what happens. But, um, you know, since I've sort of got older, I've, I've realized there's, there's other people in the world, not just me. Mm. Well, it was really, really sweet. I remember calling you one day from Brighton and, uh, I was, I was in a, a mess because I was felt, you know, like I was broke and I was just me and Doug in the room. You know, I'd show up every day and Doug would be there and I'd say, thank God, Doug Tacobong is in the room, you know, and then maybe a couple of other people would show up and eventually be at like six every day. And I called you and I said, this is, I don't know if I can do this, man. And you were so generous and encouraging it's like no no six is great you can do anything you can you're doing great with six it's true it's it's pretty <laughs> true i mean financially that's a different different matter but you know if you can get six people through your door uh that's fantastic you know when you when you start teaching you don't want too many people because it it is a it's a two-way learning curve you're learning just as much from your students as they are from you if if not more mm-hmm. That's interesting, yeah. Well, yeah, I feel that that it was like if if I had thirty people, that would have been that could have been a disaster for those people. <laughs> it could have been really violently uh, awful. <laughs> that's wow. I I have a, another question. That's, you mentioned power, and that was and that was interesting. I've been sort of thinking about that because I remember when um, you might remember this too that when Ken Harakuma or Ken Harukuma got the idea that Japan was his territory. Like he, he walked into Guruji's office and said, Guruji, Japan is mine. And Guruji probably said, yeah, you're, yeah, you're Japanese. Yeah. And, but he didn't <laughs> say that. He said, yeah, you Japan. Yeah. You know? And so Ken went back thinking that everyone in Japan needed to pay him a tithe to be a teacher. <laughs> It, you didn't do anything like that in England, though, did you? Oh, oh God, no! I mean, I, <laughs> that, I mean, uh, I think it, you know, I, I, I know, you know, I'm not in contact with Ken, but I, I do know him, and I'm, I'm, I'm aware that I'm aware of that story, and um, 
I guess, you know, I suppose in his defense, you could say it was, there's, there's a cultural difference between mm-hmm. um, Asia and, 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 and certainly Britain. Um, yeah. uh, I, I don't think I'd want that sort of power or anything like that. I think, and all, you know, we have, we were one of the first uh, schools to pay our assistants. Um, you know, previously, you either had to pay to be an assistant or you just got right. uh, reduced fees. So for Yeah, I paid to be an assistant. We thought, well, you're working, you're sweating, you're, you know, okay, sure, you're learning and there's lots of, you know, benefits for you. But, you know, it, I, if I was in that role, I'd want paying. So that's what we did. We started paying people, really. Mm-hmm. And I suppose, that, you know, that's been, we've done a whole variety of things where I think, we're some of the, uh, you know, early trendsetters, um, you know, like we had, um, uh, we have a different price structure at the moment, but when we first started, I think we were one of the only places where um, women paid uh, less than men. Um, oh, you know, for, oh, because they have the ladies' holiday and they come that, to and also, class And also, you know, let's be realistic, women don't earn as much as men still. Ah, so it was wow. it was a, a two edged thing really, you know. Um, so yeah, we were the first one of the first people to do that, I suppose. Um, and also, also we have um, uh, uh, sanitary wear period products in our in our bathroom. I think we were the, certainly in London one of the first studios to do that as well. So mix a mixture of different firsts, I suppose, has been quite good, really. Yeah, I remember. I remember hearing that. That I think you're still probably to this day the only shallow that gives women reduced rates on their yoga classes. Um, you know, especially in the Ishtanga world, <laughs> it's not very common, but it makes perfect sense. Yeah. Well, it does, considering most of your students are women. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's true. <laughs> well, it's interesting. I, I I think about this kind of business model where in in business school, they understand that if you have a concentration of businesses in one location, like a Jewish garment district, that that's actually really good for business there because people tend to concentrate to that area. But when you're, I feel like when you're an Ashtanga yoga teacher, there's so much a sense of possession and that this is my flock. These are my students. And if someone opens up across the street or God forbid, one of your assistants moves across the street and takes half your student base with them, then then would we'll, we'll then people have to die? Like people have you have to start, you know, like chopping the, off heads, like the Sicilians do. <laughs> you have to kind of go kill the your competitors at that point. I mean, isn't it a really emotional problem for us? It would be. I mean, we're we're fortunate. London London is very big. You know, I, I don't know how many millions of people, but there's a lot of people here. And so uh, realistically, there are enough students to go around. I think we do have, we certainly went through a period where there was a lot of yoga teachers um, in London. Mm-hmm. But also um, from chatting to the uh, the managers of other yoga schools, um, even though they could um, find lots of yoga teachers and sign them up on their books uh one of the biggest problems was yoga teachers not actually turning up to work 
So <laughs> they'd be like, I think at one at one point, um, they Triago was telling us that thirty uh, percent of their classes were were cover teachers. So you know, wow. it's like wow. uh, number one thing for being a you know for being a teacher is turn up i suppose yeah i think That's, so. <laughs> it seems like the first step <laughs> yeah wow. so i don't see I, you know that whole uh, you know i say when i use the phrase our students i don't or my students i don't i don't really want to use that you know it's just a a sort of a common way of saying it is it's more that students that come to my classes really um uh, because I don't want to give, I don't want to have that sort of ownership over people at all, really. Um, I think we're trying to teach people freedom, not like attachment in that sense, really. But we are, you know, we don't have, we have studio, we have studios that are, are relatively close, you know, like, you know, a 15 minute jog away, something like that. But, um, yeah. you know, I think you, you attract, uh, as a teacher, you attract students that, um, you, Will will be drawn to you and feel that they, you know they uh, they want to work with you and you want to work with them. I suppose so. That's that's how it should work. Yeah. yeah, I think if I said this once to a class, and I was I had to leave and and you know move cities, and I said to them, "Look, if you're not teaching independence, you're teaching dependence." Hmm. That's uh, yeah. That's, uh, I like that phrase. I'll, I'll try not to mm. nick. I'll try not to nick it, but it's a good one. No, you should. You <laughs> should take it and then say that you made it up too. That'd be a, that'd be a favor to me. Um, I well, another favor that you that you did for me, and I was we, I was very I was as uh, this is a very English expression. I was really chuffed. I <laughs> uh, I I was married previously, and you did us an honor to come to our wedding way out in Essex. Yes, early. Do you remember that? I certainly do. <laughs> do you remember that you you read from the the Bhagavad Gita at the wedding? Uh, it was actually from the um, Ishra Upanishad. It was. Is the oh, first, first verse of the Ishra Upanishad? You wouldn't be able to paraphrase it at all. Madam Sarvam um, It means. Um, Everything is uh, part of God, Ishvara, uh, mm-hmm. uh, that we um, should be content with letting go. We should be just happy with what we have, I suppose. Uh, we should not um, uh, want uh, what other people have, I suppose, is a paraphrase. Um, but it's a very, it's a very famous um a phrase i think and i, th- I think if you ask uh sort of hindu scholars you know devotees what you know if you could uh place all of hinduism into into one phrase um uh-huh. what would you choose and they pretty much all choose the uh, first verse of the ishra panishad oh that's fantastic no, oh, that's super fascinating. That's, that also really describes why we divorced as well. <laughs> <laughs> well huh, did you did you did you formally study Sanskrit? Did you go to a, like a Sanskrit college in Mysore or anything like um, that? I didn't go to the Patashala. Um, 
I know a few uh, a few uh, Westerners have gone, although um, none of them have completed the course, and I believe most of them uh, it didn't end well. Um, I'm not going <laughs> to put any names, but let's just say that um, uh, they didn't. Yeah, they didn't finish. They didn't finish, and it was not of their volition. Um, oh. Uh, so I have taken I have taken classes with uh, uh, three different teachers in Mysore, Sanskrit teachers in Mysore, and mm-hmm. um, yeah, the rest of it and some stuff here from the Oxford Centre of Hindu Studies. Uh, they do some oh. online courses, and also uh, yeah, and also a lot of self study. I mean. I, it was very interesting. Uh, yeah, I've always been. I've always loved languages. I totally love. I'm not very good at them, but I've loved them. <laughs> and so I was, you know, I was digging through some of my possessions at my mum's house a few years ago, and I found this notebook. And I was flicking through it, and it was various different languages that I'd, you know, been trying to learn. Uh, and this is from Amar, I guess, when I was about twelve, thirteen, fourteen, and there was the Sanskrit alphabet. Oh. So, oh wow! Even even like when I was you know thirteen years old, somehow I'd go, oh that's really interesting. There's the Sanskrit alphabet, and I'd this is pre-computers. So I don't even know how I'd come across it, but I'd written it out very diligently. So I, and I was fascinated by the idea that instead of having that it was not an alphabet, you know, as we know, an alphabet is one symbol represents um, one letter. It's a it's a syllabary. It's one letter represents uh, a consonant and a vowel usually. Oh, I see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. And yeah, that even, is you know, here's an interesting fact that you know the, uh, the 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 written Sanskrit that we're used to and that we read and that we think is so amazing that alphabet or syllabet, whatever you want to call it. Um, is only about 2,000 years old. Whereas oh. the spoken Sanskrit is much older. Mm. So the, Rig, the Rig Veda is like 3,000 years old. Mm-hmm. So it was written in a, in a different Sanskrit to the, the, I don't know how much you guys know of Sanskrit, but you know, you read uh, Patanjali or you read the Bhagavad Gita, that's written in classic Sanskrit. The Rigveda mm. and the Isha Upanishad and um, most of the earlier Upanishads are written in Vedic Sanskrit. So it's very similar, but there are some differences. Oh, interesting. Yeah. That's fascinating. That's super interesting. And, and so would we would you use the word Devanagari to describe the more modern Sanskrit? That's, that's the classical Sanskrit. It was written in, in Devanagari. Um, okay. Before that, they had a, a, a variety of scripts, including Brahmani. Um, and, and I suppose you can see that uh, Devanagari has, has descended from uh, Brahmani script. And um. Brahmani script was what was used, what uh, uh, Emperor Ashoka used to write ah, edicts on various different rocks uh, around India, I suppose. But the the script that was from the Harappan Mohanjaro uh, civilization 
along the Indus River that has never been deciphered. Oh, wow. That's fascinating. It's like one day will somebody be able to figure it out? It means John made well, two loaves of bread. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that would be just a mountain of knowledge suddenly yeah. made available. Or not. Good Lord. <laughs> or not. Or ever. Yeah. It Gosh, was my understanding that the Sanskrit, um, the syllabants, the sounds were also connected deeply to like energy points and vibration within our, our structure, within our energetic body, our physical body. Have you heard anything to that extent? I have, and I have, and they relate to uh, various different chakras, um, mm-hmm. which I'm not, I'm not uh, massively up on the knowledge of them. But um, I've been recently uh, reading a lot about um, fascia and uh, running and just body movement in general and realizing that that alignment of, um, of chakras and the, it is really important. And we, you know, we sort of go, oh, that's a lot of hippie shit. But actually... Yeah. <laughs> There's probably something in it that um that needs to be sort of worked on really. So, uh, and and the and the vibration, the sounds, yeah, definitely. I think uh, you know, sound is a, is a is a form of energy, so it will it will have an it will have an effect somewhere along the line. Mm-hmm. I'd, I would argue that um, Chinese acupuncture has has gone really very far in, in understanding those points and what they do and how they relate to our systems um and, and you know uh acupuncture is, is is not just um doesn't just happen in china obviously it's it's spread all over the world but um in india they have um uh, something called the marmara system oh. which is is i suppose is part of ayurvedic healing in general but they have mm-hmm. i think it's it's like it's like 109 or 112 points uh that you know they also use needles and pressure pressure um one of my students um uh she's an acupuncturist and i think she did her, um, her her paper on the similarities and differences between chinese acupuncture and um the indian marmara system hmm. that's interesting i one thing I want to kind of get back to is this kind of int- this notion of self-study that you brought up, or swadhyaya, that we're we're encouraged to do, and it, it I, I feel like one of the things that that we come up with, kind of being, um, I think we could still say that we're a burgeoning culture of Ashtanga yoga in in Great Britain or North America, in just that it's just in the, only in the last fifty years. Sure is that we're still kind of trying to establish um, credentials and, you know, from the Latin credere to believe, we're still trying to establish who we can believe, who, who's a a good teacher, who isn't. And, and does a, does a credential mean anything or is it just a bunch of, of um, theater, you know, hoo-ha, like if, if you, if you read at Oxford, it doesn't necessarily mean you know anything. Sure. Unless you learned it. And so you can, you can be in a room and, and learn something, but did you actually actively learn it? And 
I just wanted to know if um, if you had a, a, a feeling about that about about formal study and if it if it um, if it means something really to say that uh, you know you studied with Patabi Joyce or or you you learned it just sort of naturally. Okay, so I think it it brings up a, it brings up a, a variety of different questions in my mind. So yeah. the the word svadhyaya, um, you know, we translate as self study, but um, I used to think it was you know all about you know lying on the couch and talking to your psychiatrist and like <laughs> who am I? Um, and uh, I remember having dinner with Sharat in in London one evening, the evening before he was due to fly home, and we were talking about this, and he he was like. No, no, it's not that. It's uh, it's finding your it's finding your God, finding your your spiritual path. I suppose is is what oh. I'm trying to say. So I've taken that as as what svadhyaya really means, because it's it's very easy for us to get lost up our own asses trying to find out who we are really, um, <laughs> and uh, the spiritual path is what we're we should be aiming for. Um, the sort of second thing about you know uh, an authentic teacher and, uh, and the credentials for that um, that's also very interesting because as we as we know there were there were teachers who've been teaching for a long time and have uh, not been great and there's teachers who've uh, who are new teachers and are wonderful so uh, mm. it's very difficult to to judge what are good credentials uh, as a teacher and and i suppose the same uh, for anything just because you've got a qualification to be a chef doesn't mean you're a great right. chef um, yeah. you know and there's a whole i'm sure in the same in north america there's a whole range of different teacher trainings available that does not make you a a teacher or even a good teacher um mm-hmm. and i'm also quite intrigued by you know the way we we're sort of educated for as children to always look for an answer so we're always looking for well two plus two equals four and we're like happy with that three sides make a triangle we've got a a yes no black and white answers and we're always looking for that and that is how we measure uh, academic success really and our academic success uh, opens up uh, many doors for you, but mm-hmm. in reality, you know, we read stories, we watch films. Uh, real life goes to show us that that's not how things really work. You know, if we take uh, if we take the pandemic as an example, there was there is no um, obvious answer uh, to a way out of it. All different. If there was, all the countries would have followed it in the same way, um, mm-hmm. you know. And, and the same when people say, "Oh, well, you know, which asana should I do for this particular suffering or this pain that I'm getting? How should I do it?" There is no one answer for every single person. You know, every single person is different. Every situation is different, um, and often you have to sort of balance out. Uh, you know the pros and cons of a particular situation. So there was never that that uh, 
you know, rigorous academic way of trying to get a direct answer, um, certainly in yoga doesn't mm-hmm. work. You know, it's yeah. something we, you know, it has to be very intuitive, um, very uh, person-led, I suppose. Mm-hmm. That's interesting because in England when I was teaching, I I, um, I kept kind of butting heads with, with students and I, I think I was a, a brat and I was, I had, I had an idea of how it was supposed to be. And, um, and I was full of myself, I think in the way that you, maybe you described yourself. And I, I kept kind of feeling like the, the students were quite critical of, uh, of, of the way in which I was teaching and in that they were trying maybe to understand it. And that's what I mean by critical. Uh, and whereas when I went to when I fled England for Taiwan, um, I I was I was stunned by how the students sort of submitted enthusiastically to my uh, power or to my teaching. And I, I wanted to ask you if you felt there was an ideal student who, you know, are are and maybe does that. Um, are English are English people not not ideal? <laughs> that, that's very interesting. You know, I, I, I've, I've travelled a little bit around the world, and so I have. You know, I, I can see that um, Asian quality that you when you were in Taiwan. I was in China. God, it feels like ages ago, and I've taught in Japan. Um, so I know that idea of like you know the teacher is. You would never question the teacher. The teacher is always yeah. right in that. In that, that's a, a cultural thing. Um, uh, and in the West, we don't have that. We're we're very much like you always question, right? <laughs> so yeah. trying to trying to force one culture into another is 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 not going to work really. And even within even within a, a cultural thing. Each person is different, you know. Some, you know, I have students here who are who are American, but they would they would again they had that they would never question the teacher. The teacher is always right. And then I have students in in uh, in China who uh, always have lots and lots and lots of questions. Right. You know, so yeah, it, it, it's, it's a, a generalisation, in, in that there is a, there is a cultural difference there. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't think you know. I don't think there's a there's a one that just like as a teacher. A student that turns up—that's about—that's about as best as you can get, really. <laughs> that's ideal. You turn up every day. That's that's all you need. Showing up. Yeah. Um, well, I'd like to to find out a bit a bit more about you. Um, I have this idea that um, you might be from Bristol. Is that correct? Um, I. I... So I was born in a little village just outside Liverpool. Um, oh, the north. From the north. Yeah, then it's grim. We moved down to another little village just outside Bristol. Um, uh, I spent a little bit of time in Bristol, and um, and then I've we've we've moved around a fair amount. You know, usual parents, different jobs. Um, uh, you know, my dad. I think he started off in the in the military, and then he was. Went to university and, and 
now he lives up in North Scotland. So he's he is a Scot, like like Harmony. <laughs> yes, he he is uh, he is about as pro independent as you can get. <laughs> <laughs> can you understand him? Uh, well, emotionally, or, or 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 he he speaks he speaks Gaelic as well. Um, oh. Which um, uh, I mean, he speaks English, but he also speaks Gaelic, and he um, that I, I don't I wasn't brought up with. My little sister went to the Gaelic medium school, and so she speaks it fluently. Oh okay. wow! Wow! And um, they have they have like they have weird things like they the word for green and blue is the same, and they have they have a word for people who turn up at dinner time. <laughs> What's that word? Do you know? I don't know, but it's like one of those weird things. It's like you know, how different languages have different uh, express how we yeah. think, and so yeah. the the concept of you know we don't have that because people don't turn up at dinner time. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> must have happened quite frequently to yeah. have a name for them. <laughs> yeah, I, I I couldn't I couldn't really translate chuffed adequately there's no real uh north american word that that describes the experience of being like it's like a puffed chest a no? puffed pleased yeah yeah it's different but it's like it like it's really neatly describes the experience it does like, it yeah. does yeah. Like many languages have a word for the day after tomorrow or the day before <laughs> yesterday you know right. we, we have to have we used to have we have to use more words for that one concept yeah mm. what did your mom do uh, my mum is a writer. She's written uh, mostly children's books, uh, oh. but I think she would uh, really like to be known as a poet. Really, so that's her. Oh. That's her. That's her forte, really. I suppose. But do you think growing up with your with your folks, did and in the neighbourhood, did you feel that you were different, or did you feel like you you fit right in? To, um, to I suppose I went, you know, as a, as a young man, I went through that phase where a lot of people do of uh, of feeling like I'm I'm an interlooper in this world. I feel very, you know, not part of it, but really wanting to be. And I think that was more actually wanting to be more connected to myself. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, we grew up in a village. I had lots of friends. We worked on the farms. It, that was that was yeah normal country living I suppose. Oh. Mm. And and but no one was you know doing yoga when you, when they got home from the farm or anything oh, like that. No. When <laughs> <laughs> when did you think you you really started noticing that you were attracted to say states of absorption or that sort of thing, the hippie stuff? Um. I suppose, you know, um, some of the earliest books I read were um, Carlos Castaneda. Oh, and yeah. that really, that, I was, I was sort of blown away by some of the weird concepts that like, you know, things like our closest relatives, the trees. Um, oh. And it was, I suppose for me at the time, it was so alternative that it, that it's uh, his his ideas of reality were so diametrically opposite to the regular reality that they they sort of met at the other end really i suppose so mm-hmm. uh, yeah i really i really liked 
his writings. And I think there was a book which I've never, I can't seem to buy again, called Zen Bones, Zen Flesh, um, oh. which was a bunch of uh, koans, you know, the sort of sound of one hand clapping, that sort of thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think quite early on, Herman Hess, Siddhartha. Oh, yeah. Right. That, that, that was another book that turned me on, I suppose. Was there like a relative who was pushing this, um, these deviant thoughts onto you and <laughs> sliding little books to you? No, no, I just um, found them. Yeah, my dad's my dad's a scientist. Um, okay, uh, there was you know, definitely no, um, no. You know, my parents divorced, so there was. I, yeah, I was a lot left alone, a lot on my own, really, to 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 find that path. I didn't, you know. Yeah, I, I don't know how I came across really. Oh. That's so interesting. Those were some influential books for myself too when I was oh, wow. sort of like a younger teenager. And yeah, yeah, it's, it's kind of funny. Like I think for me, it was a lot of like my peer group, like the people that I was attracted to um, and hanging around with, were all sort of into, I mean, mind altering states and reading really sure. far out there kind of Pink Floyd thoughts in literature yeah, yeah a lot of pink floyd was going on um, <laughs> um, uh, did you start growing dreads at that point um they started growing themselves <laughs> you just decided not to comb your hair yeah, yeah. you know you'd wake up in the morning and you'd go well, what's that knot at the back of the hair and there was a dread and then it uh, yeah that um <laughs> they just grew themselves bit by bit so i thought oh that, that's that's happening um like like Sting, were you sort of attracted to Caribbean music? Is that what was going on? Um, I was very much into, and I still do. I still do like Bob Marley. I think uh, mm-hmm. I loved I loved his music. Um, yeah. Uh, and then at some point, you know, I had to. I had to get rid of the dreads. I think they were just. Um, I you know I was fed up of people either wanting <laughs> or trying to give me hash. Um, that, that had all that part. You had enough hash. Yeah, part of my life is finished. So mm. um, I was like, you know what? I, I can't. I can't be pretentious anymore. So um, mm. it was nice, um, and you know, occasionally I still miss them, but it's yeah. it's uh, much easier without them as well. But I've seen pictures of you doing some pretty advanced asana with dreads, so th- they didn't. Uh, they didn't shear off before you started doing the yoga. Oh no! I think I got. I, they got cut off in ninety ninety eight, ninety nine. I think. No. So yeah, definitely had them. I think uh, yeah, they caused a bit of problem with back bends when people used to stand on my hair. But apart from that, <laughs> did you have a ceremony to cut them off? I had a boyfriend who had dreads, and when he cut his off well i cut them off we had a, a whole ceremony one by one that's each. so weird i had that experience too yeah. yeah i cut off my girlfriend's dreads and we had a ceremony yeah did you have a ceremony uh, no you know what i was i was in my and it was really as you know it gets really hot it was really hot uh, yeah. i suppose it had been playing on my mind for some time and i was there with some friends and i said you know what i'm just gonna go down to the hairdressers and they were like okay you know, <laughs> believing it. So I just went to um, some some barbers on Devon Agri Road. Right. But he didn't bat an eyelid. It's yeah. like... Yeah. 50, 50. <laughs> yeah. I asked for a, a mohawk on Devon Agri Road, and they said, yeah, all right. Yeah. Fair, <laughs> Let me fair play. 
And I got a little mohawk. You may have met when you met me. I might have had a mohawk actually. Oh, some some time ago. Yeah. Yeah, actually. So let's go back to. I, did you, at some point, I, I have this understanding that you went to Crete, and you worked either as a chef or as a carpenter. Okay, so yeah, so in I think it was ninety. Um, early 90s, Derek and Rada were looking for uh, someone to set up their own yoga centre, I suppose. And they yeah. eventually, there would, and I've been a, an avid student of theirs since 86 when I first got. Oh, so you didn't meet them there. You'd been practicing a long time before that. I st- yeah, I started in 86 um, with Derek and Rada. And kept in touch they, you know they traveled around the world and I'd go and meet them in various different places and, uh, and learn from them uh, wow. at one point they were trying to set up an island uh, in what was Yugoslavia at the time and then eventually they settled on on Crete um, and this one one particular place called Arias Pavlos which was like uh, six kilometers down a dirt track no telephone uh, you know, it was really. It, I remember John Scott turning up, being in shock. <laughs> the, the, right, it was so far from everything, really. Uh, so, was John the the chef, and you were the carpenter, or vice versa? That's so, the story uh, that I've heard. When when it first started, there was uh, was it, there weren't many. There was Derek and Ryder, and there's a few staff. Uh, it was me, Angie. Jocelyn, who uh, went oh, went on to yeah, Eddie's, Eddie's wife. wife. So I I yeah, met Jocelyn, French woman. Yeah, I'd met Jocelyn like a few years before. She lived you know the next door town to where I lived, um, and there uh, was a guy from Amsterdam called Ruth. I can't remember what happened to him. Leanne, yeah. somebody from Australia, and then so that was the main staff, and, and I suppose like Angie was the cook. And everybody else just helped in whatever way they could, really. So cleaning, uh, okay. gardening, making things, helping with the cooking. You know, we, we didn't have – we start off with, like, 20, 30 guests, really. Uh, mm-hmm. And then John Scott was uh, brought in to be the third teacher. Um, oh. But, uh, you know, you'd have to you'd have to get the, the proper details, really, but from John, but um, – I, I think there was there was a clash of uh, between Derek and, and John and uh, John was not the third teacher and, and he was he be, he was doing a whole bunch of cooking and cleaning really uh, <laughs> but, but yeah I think I think he was a bit sad with that but anyway you know yeah. that's um, that's his that's his story to tell really um, right I'll I'll get him on and I'll ask him about yeah that. and then. Um, uh, and then you know I was there for five years really. So uh, at some point I ended up doing a lot more cooking as well. Um, so I would say I've never I was never a good cook. I was more of a like a, somebody who could cook. We'd get our food once a week. Um, it sounds terrible, but we'd drive we'd drive up to Rathimno, the nearest town, um, which is about an hour away, and um, I'd go around all the markets and buy food for then forty to sixty people in my broken Greek, uh, and would fill our fridges. And then so um, 
uh, you know, by by Tuesday, which was the sort of last day, it would be, you know, it was cabbages with everything, really. So it was, yeah. I was very good at um, cooking with whatever whatever was available, really. Um, mm. I think that, that's been really useful for me, really, not as, as a cook as such, but that idea of adaptability. Um, mm. You know, and I think as uh, we forget how, uh, amazing our, our bodies and minds are and that we are designed to adapt um, mm. and to be able to um, if we trust our bodies and minds so much more we can uh, we can achieve um, um, so much more I think mm. that's incredible so did you meet Derek and Rada in the UK uh, met them on a, on Skiros which was an island um Another Greek island where they have uh, yeah. alternative um, teaching uh, fortnights, and they were there teaching yoga. Um, and um, I watched them do a demonstration at the time. This is in eighty. But how were you there in Skiros of all places? Um, uh, there was an alternative holiday center, and I thought, oh, just you know, nineteen. I want my holiday. I book holiday to Greece. Go up there, you know. What were you working at that you needed a holiday? I was working in a hostel for homeless people. Oh, nice! So, okay. um, and yeah, which I really enjoyed. But um, yeah, need a holiday from that. Need a holiday. Sure. Got to Greece. Yeah, this alternative holiday centre. They did drama and psychodrama and you know anything that was hippie shit that was available. That was. <laughs> and yoga was there, and and Derek and Ryder were teaching, and they did a demonstration, and I was like whoa there's no way i can do i've already done a like a little bit of yoga out of books and like the odd class you know hatha yoga and yeah. odd class here and there there's no way i could do that i was sat next to a guy called satish kumar who must oh. be in his 80s or 90s now um in the uh i think in the 50s or maybe early 60s before i was born anyway he left india with no money and he walked um, from India to Paris, to Moscow, to London. He got put on a boat um, to, to Washington uh, to meet the various different premiers and presidents of those uh, countries. And uh, he, to basically promote uh, peace, world peace, and um, not to have nuclear weapons. So he, he did that with... With no money, which is wow. uh, an incredible, an incredible guy. Um, anyway, I sat next to him, uh, <laughs> and I always remember him said, "Go on, you're a young man, give it a try." Oh! And if he hadn't have said that, I, I wouldn't be chatting to you today. Yeah, that's amazing. You were 19 at the time. Yeah. And he said, go on, try that. And then, it, and was there like a little place where, where Derek had organized students to, yeah, to be so there abused? Was like a, there was like a, a, a concrete platform, a circular com concrete platform with a, a bamboo roof over it. And mm -hmm. uh, I guess there was maybe a dozen of us uh, who were there. At the, at the, you know, there was lots of people, but a dozen of us who had signed up for that particular course. Mm -hmm. And... Um, uh, yeah, he took us through took us through primary series through that two weeks, um, wow. and then I went back again 
I, I mean, I so loved it. I'm so blown away, as, as, as we all are, I suppose, after our first few lessons, um, that I went back about a month later and, and did it again. Um, and then I think, I, did I go again? Anyway, one of those, it wasn't the first trip, possibly the second trip. Um, you know, the, this, uh, this alternative center was um, surrounded by, you know, woods and farmland, just, you know, Greek, it's a typical Greek island. And um, uh, I was in Birabhadrasana B, and uh, one of the local farmers uh, was trying to scare away the crows with his <laughs> um, shotgun. Yeah. So, you know, we've heard it going off a few times during the week beforehand. <laughs> anyway, I was in Virabhadrasana B, and then I looked down, and there were some pellets that had embedded themselves in uh, my in my left shoulder, and just a no. part really. So that was, oh, was saying. Fuck, I've been shot. <laughs> but, uh, anyway, it, it didn't go in too deep and we just carried on. Oh, so. oh my gosh. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, it's, um, it's a good story, but, you know, it's a true one. You're probably one of the only people on the planet who's been shot in Wild a yoga <laughs> It's got a, there's probably a half dozen. Um, I, I have, the, I have a, a, my brother who gave me a lot of those books by Carlos Castaneda and Herman Hess. He also gave me some pulpy fiction novels. Um, I forget the author, but one of them was um, The Man of Bronze. Hmm, and there was like tw- 20 of them and Man of Bronze, you know, rescuing um, women in different parts of the world. Um, Whenever I, I think of Derek Ireland, that's what I think of. I think of the man of bronze, this like massive, larger than life, huge pectoral muscle, muscly guy. Can you describe what it was like to see him the first time? He was, he was, uh, very, like you say, very much larger than life. Although he was only like six foot one, he did have his, his physique was, uh, was very big. And I think, you know, Patabi um, Juice used to call him Tarzan because he had that sort yeah. of big thing. He was very much into the body and bodybuilding. Um, he used to be uh, a football player. So right. I think that was, there was part of that. And he was also, uh, he used to run the Shivananda Center on in the Bahamas, which is, you know, a long pre-Ashtanga, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that whole that was he's very much into the the, the physical culture I suppose, um, mm-hmm. and um, he loved uh, he loved I really loved being the centre of attention. But he loved that sort of performance when um, people would you know students would come down to uh, to dinner for the first time in Ayos Pavlos at the at the, uh, the yoga centre there, and. Um, Derek would walk in and just heads would turn because he was uh, such a um, charismatic character, I suppose, really. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I really I really enjoyed his company and I really felt I learned a lot um, from him, not just about um, yoga, but, you know, just many different things, really, I guess. Yeah. 
I was told when I first started practicing, um, you know, Derek was always sort of this um, almost mythical kind of legend. He had just passed away, I think, a few years before I started. And um, I was told that he used to practice this sequence with like ankle weights and wrist weights. Yeah, during we, his practice. yeah, we we tried all that. I mean, it, <laughs> you know, weighted jacket and music and all a whole variety. I think it was a very experimental time. Um, mm. So all the all those things, you know, and we'd we'd have. Um, like uh, two meter lengths of, of wooden board that would stick in his jeep, and then would uh, drive it down to the beach and practice on the beach. Or you know, I guess it was just yeah, very much an experimental time of seeing what could and couldn't be done. Really, um, I, the, the the wrist and ankle weights um, uh, are not really beneficial. Really, they they tend to sort of throw your body out of its its natural movement. So. It's uh, right. not rec- not a recommendation, I would say. Oh, you don't do it at Ashtanga Yoga London? Nah, we wait <laughs> uh, from that half. Were you were you close to when he when he passed finally? Um, I, I was very emotionally very close, but not geographically close. Um, I was in Edinburgh at the time. Um, mm. When he died, and he was with his uh, new wife, Christina, Christina. Um, yeah. and we uh, it wasn't it wasn't a very close relationship that I had with Christina really. So I found it I found it quite difficult at the time really um, mm. to to connect in that sense. I just I just figured oh. you know some people you get on with and some people you know it it doesn't click. And uh, although I you know I'm, I'm generally quite try and be nice i try and get on with as many people as possible uh yeah it was it doesn't you know i can't i can't be i can be honest and say you know i can't be a friend to every single person right, That's true. <laughs> right. when was your first trip to mysore uh 95 and why'd you go um uh same reason most people go anywhere really i was following a girl <laughs> oh yeah absolutely <laughs> who uh, it wasn't Anna, was it? No, it was a, a, a young woman called uh, Lila Patronelli from um, from Greece, from Athens. And mm. she had been to Mysore before and she said, you know, why don't you come out? Um, and uh, so I was like, yeah, right, I'm, I'm there. So I went out in, I think it was October. We'd literally just closed up Agios Pavlos, the practice place, and... Um, Jumped on a flight from Athens, uh, and and to, I think was it via Delhi or via Bombay? I can't. But you you couldn't get to you couldn't fly into Bangalore at the time, so you had to change planes, and then fly mm-hmm. down to Bangalore and then catch a uh, a train that took forever um, mm-hmm. get to Mysore. Really, so it was a very it's very harrowing experience <laughs> first <laughs> i suppose you have to remember there's no mobile phones no no computers um yeah you know like a rickshaw was five rupees and a, yeah. a, a coconut i think a coconut was like three rupees or something it was everything was you know you could get a meal for 12 rupees or anger's mess it was you know you have romantic romantic memories of those of those, of those times and places when when it, when everything was New, I suppose. I suppose you know. Mm-hmm. I've done like I've done like more than twenty visits to Mysore now, and um, 
you know, it's always the like with anything that you've done a lot of, it's always the last one that you remember a lot and the first one. So I remember my first yeah. trip very well. Yeah. Subsequent trips, they all sort of meld into one, I suppose. Right. right. Did you have hot water in the beginning? Uh, in Crete, no. We used to, <laughs> we used to have to uh, boil it on uh, on gas burners, and then mm-hmm. there was an unfortunate incident. Um, the gas bottles didn't have regulators on them. Oh, no. uh, uh, so uh, at some point, the uh, the gas tube caught fire to this uh, very large gas bottle. And um, it was only, we had about two inches of tube left before the whole thing um, would have blown up. And um, Derek and I t- turned on the hose. There was a garden hose and we turned on the hose and put out the fire. Yeah. You know, it would, it, the size of bottle would have taken out a block, really. So um, we were, That would be a very different history we'd be living in. A very different history, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> that's another adventure. Yeah, yeah. I think my life, you... my life with Derek seemed to be full of adventures. <laughs> we lived when we lived in uh, Yugoslavia. We had a uh, a well, and um, uh, somebody had unfortunately dropped the bucket down the well. So uh, you know, how are you going to get the water out of the well? Um, uh, Derek's simple idea was he'd grab Hamish by the ankles, lower him down the well. Um, uh, in the dark, and um, <laughs> I'd pull out the pull out the bucket, which is exactly yeah. what happened, really. So, uh, yeah, that was I was upside down in a well, being with my ankles. <laughs> yeah, great, interesting Cle- experience. Clever, Clever <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Did um, what was was it different? Was it very different for you to practice with Tabby Joyce than it was with Derek? Was it? Oh yeah, vastly different, vastly different. You know, uh, with Patabi Jose, he would just watch, like really, he'd sit on his little stool, and you know, an example of this was, you know, the electricity would go out every now and again, and he had a torch, and uh, so you'd be practicing, and it like suddenly it'd be pitch black, and you're like, oh. Okay, so my arms are up in the air or my legs around my leg or whatever position you're in. Are you trying to sort of carry on? He'd reach for his torch, turn it on. So now there was light in the room, but then he'd move it around and then it'd be spotlighted on you. He'd be like, oh. <laughs> that, was, that was quite frightening, really. Yeah. So my, my first trips in Mysore, there was, a, there was a lot of fear because you'd heard all these rumours that like, you know, He's going to stop you after Suranamaskar or, you know. So I, it took me about five trips before I actually got over that fear, I suppose. Mm. <laughs> and were you practicing, like, far into the series? Were you in, like, advanced series or I doing mean, anything like so that with Derek? I, I started in 86. It took me about uh, two and a half years of just practicing primary before I started intermediate. And then I, I think I started advanced uh, about five years after, you know, after five years. You know, mm-hmm. remember I was a young person, so it, it, things came easier. Um, but yeah, yeah, it took me about five years before I started doing advanced. And then uh, I guess I finished uh, advanced and started doing uh, B section after about, 10 years, I guess, 10, 11 years. Mm. 
So I've been mm-hmm. practicing for like 35 years now. Yeah. And and you met did you meet Anna in your 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 wife Anna in um in Mysore or did no, you meet I her back in England? Scotland? I was teaching at a um a Buddhist retreat at the time and mm-hmm. I did what you're never supposed to do. I copped off with one of my students. Oh yeah. <laughs> Like, that is the I, way to I, meet I, girls. The thing and married her, and um, yeah, they, yeah, that seemed to work out okay, actually. So I'm, I'm very pleased about that. <laughs> you and Richard Freeman. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think and it, I think it's okay. Others. I think it's okay if you marry them, right? Yeah, <laughs> it, it, it definitely helps. It definitely. <laughs> <laughs> um, did my my teacher guy had all told me that i could you i could do one but if i did two of the girls it would be a problem that's what uh, he told me well, yeah. uh, your his students and uh, was do the work yeah it, well, i was i was his apprentice <laughs> in in new york oh yeah and he said to me yeah you can do one of them but if you do two it's going to be a problem yeah, and you should stop kissing them on the mouth. And I said, "Guy, they're kissing me." <laughs> and I said, "No, you should really put an end to that." Um, did you two? Did I hear a rumor once that the two that you and Guy taught yoga across the street from each other in Bristol, and neither one of you knew it? No, that, yeah, not as not as far as I know. Um, I started teaching in Bristol like once a week. There was a like a little community center just around the corner from me um Mm -hmm. uh near near a pub called the star and garters i can remember and um it was on the uh what we used to call the front line which is basically you know the sort of uh the dodgy part of town really i suppose um so i used to teach down there once a week um much later, when I think my first or second trip to my, it must have been my second trip or third trip to Mysore, I met Guy. Uh, I had already moved out of Bristol, and he was then he was living in Bristol at the time, and because I think his business father own or started Triodus Bank or something like that. You'd have to write. Yeah, his his father is a is an Irish banker in Bristol. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, so he was Guy was living in Bristol. And then uh, start or started classes in a similar a similar area to me where I used to be. So oh, does that make right. sense? So yeah, that's area years apart. Right. Okay. And I I just put the two together. And that and it might, he met what was Guy's wife's name again? Uh, Laurie. Laurie. Yeah. He Laurie. Met, um... He met Laurie in Mysore uh, at that she... time. She famously could put her whole hand, her whole fist in her mouth. I, I believe that, last time I saw Laurie, I believe that was still, uh, she was still able to do that. <laughs> it's like an advanced yoga trick. <laughs> yeah, I, caused, I really like Laurie. She's a caused, lovely, lovely person. Caused quite the stir, I'm sure. <laughs> um, speak, just to, to follow up on, on the wives, is Anna, was she the first woman to ever do Karandavasana. Um, is that true? No, I'm sure, I'm sure there's first first woman I had seen, but I'm pretty yeah. sure that other other women have been able to do it beforehand. Um, the little the story behind that, and, and she doesn't really 
think it's a great story, but I'll tell it you anyway. She'd gone to Jamaica to a, a wedding with some uh, for some friends and taken a yoga mat. And I've never been to Jamaica, so I can't. I can only imagine what it's like. Anyway, she had uh, she had slipped half a tab of acid the <laughs> the day before. And then, uh, guess what? Hey, Presto, the next day she could do Kurundavasana. That's fucking incredible. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Harmony, we're so, doing so, the acid. It's definitely about <laughs> the, the, the mind being able to change. You know, we get into that whole concept of, I can't do this, I can't do this, it's, this is not possible. Uh, you know, our mind is often what blocks us. I know it's, it's very easy to say and it's very difficult to break that block, really. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's funny. You know, that reminds me the first time I did acid in Illinois, I was, I was in these, I was in the wood, um, with my brother and his, his, um, paramour. And we were just walking around. I was barefoot and I saw this cliff side or bit of rock that, um, was right up to my neck. And I was tripping hard at this point. And I remember standing high and I high jumped onto the rock, which must have been like five feet. And I don't know, I don't know how I didn't, I've never been able to do it since, but I just like, I was like, Oh, I'll do that. And I just jumped up onto the rock. Everybody looked up at me. Like, how'd you get up there? It's like, I just jumped. I don't, I don't know how I got up here, but it was a weird. It was like the acid did, like takes all of your preconditions away. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, it does say in, in the uh, Yoga Sutras that you know one way is 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 through is through drugs. Um, mm-hmm. I, I suppose uh, I you know I st- I stopped doing drugs because um, well I was fine. I was getting into a cycle of depression really, which. which Part of that, I don't know if if the two were linked, but uh, certainly there was there was a it stopped me break it stopped me breaking that cycle. So um, I had to I had to break the cycle by 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 stopping doing drugs. Um, but I, you know, obviously they they did play a, a part of my life um, uh, when I was younger. So you know, I have to be I have to be very thankful for for the insights they they've given me. Um, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. we we it would, it would put Harmony and I different psychedelics just put us into states of of toxic. Um, um, what is that when you when you're sh- uh, too afraid to speak or move? Paranoia. Par- paranoia. But like frozen. Frozen. I don't know. Yeah, catatonic. Yeah. Fear. <laughs> yes, yeah, so we stopped doing that as well. Um, but I did find out just recently that in Canada you can buy microdoses of LSD over uh, online and they'll send it to you and the people use it for depression. I, I believe Canada has a very different drug laws to Britain. Um, yeah. No. Uh, yeah. We, we don't. Was... That, although I can say that Britain manufactures more um, uh, cannabis for um, medical use than any other country in the world. Wow. God, I have where no do you idea go? where that farm is, but... Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, we should probably get back on the straight and narrow. Uh, what, 
when did you start teaching in London? How did that happen? Um, so at, at the time, I, in 99, I was living in Edinburgh, okay. teaching there. Um, and uh, John Scott was teaching in London. And um, he'd been there for about, or here, should I say, he'd been here for about three years, three and a half years. And was getting really fed up with it, really. You know, he's a he's a New Zealander. He's he's he loves the countryside. He likes the sun. Yeah. He likes surfing, or, or, or windsurfing, shall I say? That's you know that those are his passions, or certainly were at the time. Um, so I think London for him was quite uh, stifling, really. Um, so uh, him and Lucy and their and their two kids, um, India and Finn. Uh, Moved down to Cornwall, and mm-hmm. um, Penzance. Penzance, exactly. Yeah. And uh, so he asked me to take over, and we agreed a price. And um, yeah, that's that's how it started. So my, you know, my first, my first, uh, I'd already been covering for John when he'd go away. So I'd already right. Some of the so students, they knew you a little. Yeah, I knew what was happening really. So it sort of felt the right thing to do really. And um, yeah, so I, I'm, I moved down to London, and um, yeah, I, I think 18 students was the first was the first class, really. Wow, was that was that the Kung Fu Studio still? No, that was a place called. It was a place on Great Ormond Street, which mm-hmm. is where there's a very famous children's hospital there, mm-hmm. and. Um, we were in a in a uh, in a top floor attic, which had this beautiful arched window which looked over um, all the, the 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 roofs of of central London, all these old old buildings of central London, St Paul's Cathedral, that sort of thing. And um, mm. we'd get the sunrise, this beautiful orange sunrise uh-huh. through the windows. But the yeah. uh, the room was was falling to pieces. You know, one of the windows didn't close properly. The roof. We used to put buckets out next to people's mats to catch the drips. <laughs> From when oh, it, yeah. it was a bit battered and falling down. Wow. Um, I remember going to the to the Kung Fu Studio once. You did this lovely thing. Where maybe you still do it, where you'd put little feet down on the floor and. I remember walking in and it's like, oh yeah, that's where I should go. I should go where those little feet are. Okay, so yeah, so we we uh, you know trying to get squeeze as many people in as possible. It's it's often useful to have some marking of where people can put their mats. So I think that's how we started. You know, our logo has been the two feet, and um, uh, in our current studio, we uh, we also had that. Um, up until relatively recently, we had we had uh, feet markings. Uh, mm-hmm. People knew where they put their mats. Yeah, nice. Speaking of of two feet, um, I remember I was in your in your studio once, and I was doing Dwipada two feet Dwipada Shashasana, and um, I'd had a pretty bad back injury, and I think it was actually just the start of my back kind of collapsing the discs back there collapsing. And I, I had, um, I had looked at the Lino's Ashtanga yoga book and I had realized one day that in the picture, uh, Sharat's doing it backwards. 
he's he's got his right foot behind first and then the left and uh it's because i think they just reversed the picture so they would look good in the sequence but i remember like oh let me try that and so i was doing i was trying that in your studio and it caught your attention right away and you came right over do you remember that yeah, to be honest, Russell, I'm really, I'm really excited. No. I don't remember. No, but you definitely, you definitely, yeah, you definitely like, that's, no, we're not doing, we're not going to do that. And I just, <laughs> and I, I was explained myself and I, and I remember asking you, um, you know, what you did or something. And, and I, I think I must've asked you a question about injuries and you said, oh, I've had every injury. Right. I suppose, um, my uh, obviously that I can't have had every injury because there's, there's a billion <laughs> injuries you can have. But uh, what I meant is I've injured a lot of a lot of my body. You know, both knees, elbows, wrists, fingers. You know, most joints of my body have have sustained very and different parts of my back, shoulders, whatever, neck have sustained injuries and uh, healed to to. Uh, to some extent, mostly, mostly completely, some reoccurring, some little niggles still. Um, yeah, so um, the body is incredible and in the way it heals. Were you injuring yourself like through the practice or were they injuries outside of the practice? With, with Derek? Um, mostly, mostly outside. You know, the things that, that uh, you know, Body injuries for myself, I can't. I can't speak for other people. Have usually been because I've I, I've been stupid. You know, <laughs> it's it's either I've been uh, like you know trying to impress somebody or just you know forgetting gravity exists or you know <laughs> that, that's that sort of thing really. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And have you, when you injured yourself, do you keep practicing? Do you modify the practice? How do you deal with all these injuries and continue your practice? I've I've got 10 fingers and I think I've still got one left of the number of practices (laughs) I've missed. Mm. Wow. Um, And uh, so, yeah, I I, I, I pretty much always practice. with injuries, um, you know, obviously there's there's no one medicine for every single person or every single particular injury, um, but I've, the the sort of sort of basics that I would go through is is, is experiment um, move, mm-hmm. as in you know you still do the you still do the postures you still do whatever movements you can you may have to adapt it try and adapt to as make as little adaptions as possible, but you do need to adapt it. Um, and uh, I use the breath as a regulator, as a measure, so that um, if I can breathe through whatever m- movement it is, or, and, and it's less painful or, or not more painful, that's good. If it's more painful and I'm still breathing, I have to reduce the movement, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I always try, but I don't, I certainly don't skip arsoners out. I always, you know, I might uh, make some small adjustments, but I just try and keep them as small as possible. Or maybe I just can hold the arsoner for one breath. And then um, two weeks later, it's two breaths, that sort of thing. Uh, mm-hmm. 
You mentioned uh, when we got on the call that you'd had a good practice this morning. Yes. Is a, is a good practice now in 2021 the same as it was in, in 1990 or, in, or 2000? That's a really good question. Um, the, the experience afterwards is the same. That sort of uh, clarity of mind that uh, puts a smile on your face, um, that is... Uh, is identical, really. That is is, is still the same. if if possibly more so now. Really, I think. Mm. Um, I think I had. I think the thing that I that it gave me more when I was younger was more energy. Mm-hmm. Um, that feeling that you could sort of run around the world. Um, so I have a little less of that, but more <laughs> clarity of mind. And uh, and the smile is bigger. Mm. Some, and, yeah. Someone told me once that they had watched you practice in the morning before class. And I, I don't know who, who it was, Noah or someone like that. And so they'd never seen anyone who could practice so neatly and efficiently, just bang, 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 get through the practice. And it's sort of, I know it takes great effort, but it, it looked like, you know, like running water, like like it was effortless to go through them. It wasn't like when people look at me practice, they always feel sad for me. <laughs> <laughs> um, efficiency. We 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 are we are we are designed as as human beings. You know, you got to remember, like ninety percent of our um, existence as human beings has been as hunter gatherers. You know, yeah. mm-hmm. um, that whole concept of uh you know breath movement that you know that's been around for a long time mm-hmm. you know, people have been shooting bows and arrows and holding their breath all that sort of thing running you know chasing antelopes that all that's contributed in some you know long history of, uh, of physical practice i suppose um so being efficient is is a really important thing because, um, you know, we only have a certain amount of energy per day, um, even mm. just talking from a calorific point of view. Um, so I, I, I've, you know, yes, you can sort of power your way through a practice or you can use your, um, uh, uh, trust your body and use your fascia to make it happen uh with less effort, if that makes sense. Mm. Mm. I'm sure your commitment to practicing, you know, daily and like keeping the practice as close to um, the structure as possible helps inform that e- efficiency that you find. Yeah, I think uh, I think it's very easy for us to get into that sort of the body is a machine. The body is a, a sort of mechanical thing. You know, when you first learn uh, yoga, you're all about, you know, or this bend this joint 90 degrees, tighten this muscle, and it, and clearly your 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 body and your mind are, are so much more than just uh, joints and muscles. Mm-hmm. So there's like maybe uh, would you say that each day, even though you're following the system there's maybe a slightly different quality to your practice? Like how do you... Oh, every, every, day, every day is, yeah, I mean, some every day is different. You know, the, you know, 
Sometimes you'll find one, I find one particular posture easier, and another time I find it, it really opens me up. So, it, I mean, that's what makes it exciting, really, is that you just, you know, you start your first time in a scar and you go, oh, that wasn't too bad. Oh, I'll do another one. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And you practice super early too. Yeah, when I'm uh currently I'm I'm a bit lazy, so I'm getting up at three o'clock in the morning. Oh and, come on man. And, and so I start practice about four thirty. Um but when I'm when I'm teaching, um I wake up at one um and start practicing about two fifteen. Wow. And how many years have you been doing that? Because it's, it's quite uh, extensive. Yeah, I started teaching London in uh, 99. So what's that? 22 20 odd years. years. Yeah. Incredible. Well, it's, just, I, it's just a number and I'm, 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 I'm quite used to it. I mean, I've, even as a kid, I was an early, I was an early, you know, an early riser. I mean, obviously not one o'clock in the morning early riser. I was more, you know, <laughs> that's the time I was going to bed. But um, yeah. Uh, yeah, I love early mornings. It gives me time to be grumpy. But what time do you go to bed? That's that's the yeah, real that's key, the I question. think. Everybody asks that, you know. What, what, <laughs> so what time do you go to bed? Uh, it, I I tried to get into bed by half past seven, but it's, uh, you know, when you've got a family, that doesn't always work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Netflix, I, I w- Netflix definitely doesn't help. No, <laughs> no I know. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to ask you about your book Push Palm. You you had a wonderful quote in there that I think. Do you mean do you mean, sorry, do you mean the magazine or the book? Because I've you know I did a bit of, I did Yoga Dharma oh years ago. Or do you mean okay the- yeah 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 please? Is it Yoga Dharma or is it the magazine Push Palm? I don't know what's going on. Somewhere there's a quote. There's a quote. <laughs> you uh. The, in your in Pushpam, there's an entry in the book that says your main aim was to help students move past the physical practice of asanas, and I, that was so interesting to me because it's because I feel like the the more that you do that, the more that you svadjaya and study and and become closer to uh, to God, the more that you can enjoy being in your body and realize that you're inhabited because we're always in some kind of miserable posture we're, we're we're in some miserable posture right now whether it's half lotus or you're lying down or walking you're but we become more fully inhabited in the body and feeling it and being ecstatic by having one and grateful that we have one and we can watch it decay um is is that a way of of moving past the physical, just I to be truly what, physical. What I mean by by that is that you know, yeah, we we are we are always in, in our body, and it and it's um, not getting trapped in that in in a simple concept that yoga is just physical. You know, where mm. it's when you when you first come across it, you you think of it as just a physical um, practice, and you forget that it affects. Uh, the way you think, um, your relationship to your emotions, and obviously the outside world—it has all those uh, effects as well. Um, so, it's, I suppose the simple thing was just to try and help people understand that that is what—that's what's, what's going to happen to you in yoga, and you know, and particularly, 
you know, when you start doing uh, intermediate series, and you're probably aware of this, you know, your, your students are at least, that um, often people get very emotional. I certainly did very emotional. The first of like six months, a year of, of practicing intermediate is quite uh, yeah. emotionally traumatic for some people. Certainly was for me. So it definitely shows it's working, but people don't realize that how, how powerful yoga is, really. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us more about how, how, you, how Pushpam came to be? Um, I suppose I was just, uh, you know, thinking, I'd be really nice to have something to, that's written that we can share amongst the students in London. I'd originally thought of something as be like, you know, 12 pages long little pamphlet or something, you know, would I just put out some information and yeah, it'd come out, you know, once or twice a year or whatever. So nothing, nothing particularly big, something that, you know, easy to produce. Um, and so I asked a couple of friends, a couple of students uh, to be involved in it. One um, who I knew would be a great editor, another who did some design and they were like, yeah, let's do it. That sounds really exciting. And then, um, on our first meeting, like like uh, we all sat where we all sat around together, um, they were like, "Well, you know, this is an idea, and we're going to make it. It's going to be like sixty pages long, and we're going to have lots of photos, and maybe like this." And I'm like, "Okay." So I was a bit, <laughs> I, was, you know, I was like, "Oh, you know, let's let's." I'm very much sort of like, I'm really happy to delegate and to to let people be creative and, you know, Matt and Emma do that, do our creativity on, on that, that side. And I know it's a big passion of theirs. So I, I'm going to let say, you know, I have my own creativity, but this is clearly something that you excel in. So um, let's go with that really. Mm, that's beautiful. You know, I really, yeah, believe, I really believe in um, each person has, has certain strengths and we should, uh, encourage those uh, as much as possible it's just um, you know it's finding your svadharma it's finding what you're what you what you're good what you're good at mm-hmm. doing it well and doing it with love yeah you have such a unique way of i think uh bringing people together and you're the way even the way you run your room and the way you teach it's it never feels like a very top-down model it always feels like um you know you're really actively creating um, the practice and somebody's experience of the practice with them, even in your adjustments, I find it's very uh, co-creative as opposed to just like imposing yourself on someone. <laughs> I, th- I think that, I, I think, you know, it, it, the two things, I mean, the, the yoga community is, is really important to have that to support us is very important. Uh, and uh, I suppose also you know, as a as a yoga teacher, it's very easy um, to become quite egocentric, um, and, and so it's something that I'm always uh, trying to sort of counteract. Really, you know, you you're given this amount of um, power and, and and control and love and adoration, so it's very it, it would be very easy to abuse that. So I I, I, I do my best not to. Mm. Mm. That's interesting. I, I wonder if certainly someone of, of your generation, um, as opposed to a, a Zoomer or a millennial, um, I would think that like a, a kind of anti-Thatcherite uh, 
anarcho-socialist punk would um, would come to create the kind of community that you have? Um, I suppose my history has gone into uh, making making the way it is. Yeah, of course. I mean, everybody's history makes who they are. So yeah. uh, a lot of those insights definitely. Uh, yeah, that's definitely that's definitely me. <laughs> <laughs> So you have a unique yoga school in that you don't really take drop-in students, right? Um, if the, We only take drop-in students if they're, like, from out of town. That right. basic thing is that people pay, oh, come yeah. in, they pay for You know, if you live in London, you want to come to practice with us, uh, you know, unless you're a single mum or a single dad, um, yeah, you you pay for the month up front, and then that's it, really. We've just actually, we've just re- recently, I suppose, changed our paying payment system to uh, we're calling it fair exchange so that mm. um it's more about you pay how much you feel yoga is worth to you um mm. so it, it does it, it frees up that sort of concept of, of of we're setting the price you have to pay you have to pay that it also it sort of democratizes it a bit so it allows people who um who are you know out of work, temporarily furloughed, or whatever difficulties they're going through? It gives them um, the ability to to still come to yoga, really. Um, and then you know we have students who are who are on uh, reasonably high paying jobs who are able to pay more. So it uh, so far it's balanced out really, but we haven't been running it for long to to give you a um, you know a. a better results on that really um but it's something that i've i've wanted to try for some time and um, i'm really hopeful that it will work mm, that's incredible that's fantastic wow. yeah i mean wow. I, you know I've, it is fingers crossed I, you know i don't know if, I, i'm not sure if many businesses ever pull that sort of thing off but um we're we're going to try and do it anyway mm. yeah wow that's good. i remember Early on, one of the, the best bits of advice you gave me as a, as a Shala owner is to make sure it gets out there that the room is is full and you're not taking any more students. <laughs> and so I was like, I'm sitting here with two students, but I, you know, this room's empty, but I'll make sure people know that no one's allowed in. <laughs> <laughs> I think reputation is very important. And, uh, you know, the, 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 there's... Uh, Rumors, people love rumors and gossip. Um, and uh, so I think at one stage we we had a waiting list of people and, and it it got to about, I don't know, a thousand people. And we were like, this is ridiculous. So we're, <laughs> we're, we're never going to. So we scrapped the waiting list. I'm sorry to all those people who ever put their name down. I'm, I'm hoping they eventually did get through. Um, and, and so now we... We run a system of like uh, you phone up, and if we've got space, we've got space. If you haven't, keep phoning up every couple of weeks until we have got space. Really, that's oh. wow. And how? What's your capacity? How many students do you accept at one time? Um, we can have a, the room comfortably hold. When I say comfortably, I mean reasonably hold seventeen people, but we can push it to twenty. And then we have a finishing room uh, which does uh, seven to nine people depending on how close you want to get. Mm. This is all mm-hmm. pre-pandemic, obviously. Um, yeah. And so we open at 
five in the morning, although, you know, Louise and a few others are there at 4.15, 4.30. They start early. Um, and then we close at 11.30. So we can get through probably about 70, 80 people every morning in that amount of time. Wow. wow. You know, for Harmony and I, I'd say that um, the we, w- we would adore living in a, in a situation where we could come to your class every morning because it's, it can be quite hard, especially virtually trying to um, get yourself together to do a practice and to motivate yourself. And, and the idea, just like, just thinking about it, the idea of being able to take the tube and go to your class is so delicious. And I would feel like I, I would, I would, maybe I would put together a better practice for myself, you know, if I could do that. That's, that's really, really, really kind of you to say that. I mean, uh, you know, being in London, I feel like I'm, I'm just trying to be a, a service to the yoga community, really, um, because I know, you know, I, I suppose you could say, fortunately, people find it difficult to practice at home. Um, yeah. You know, if it, if it was easy, then I'd, I'd be out of a job. <laughs> <laughs> But, well, uh, yeah. So I, yeah, I, I felt I find it currently. I find it quite difficult because I know people are, you know, people are struggling anyway um, with mm-hmm. the pandemic and lockdown. Um, but people are struggling, finding it difficult to practice. You know, my advice is is always, uh, you know, quality over quantity is is more mm-hmm. important. The quality of your practice, quality of your breath, uh, the quality of your awareness while you're practicing is much more important than the quantity of any of those three things. Mm. Mm, That's beautiful advice. And I think much needed during these difficult days. Sure. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for your service, Hamish, your treasure, your national treasure, not, not our (laughs) national treasure, but a global treasure. treasure, But thank you. And you've been ever so generous to come on the show, and I know it's a lot of time in the middle in the middle of the evening. You could be doing any number of things. It's almost bedtime for you. Yeah, it, it is. Would only, way only past. I'm going to stay up and because uh, it's Moon Day tomorrow for us. So. Yeah. Oh, you can have a little movie night. Yeah, <laughs> do I think Anna's cooking some food. Oh, nice. nice. We'll give her our best. Yes. And can you tell our listeners where they can find you? Should they be in London and want to take your classes, or if they're traveling through London, how can they drop in um, once we, you're teaching email, again? Email me, give me a phone call. I think it's on. You know, look up Ashtanga Yoga London. Uh, it's, the information is there. Or you could just simply. I mean, this is all when we get back open, and which should be hopefully March. I think. Um, yeah. Just rock up at the front door. You know, we open at 5 a.m., close at 11.30. We're opening again in the evening, 5 till 8. Uh, 92 to 94 Drummond Street. It's very close to Euston Station. It's uh, yeah. quite central. And, yeah. Yeah, it's a beautiful oh, nice. space. I was so grateful that I could it's sneak little, in there one day when I was in town. <laughs> it's a little Indian street because there's quite a few Indian restaurants on there. So uh, yeah. it has a nice vibe to it. And people can order your book uh, and the Pushpam magazines, I think, on yeah, through the Pushpam website? Yeah, they can do it on pushpam.co.uk. Uh, 
and we'll we'll send them out. I think they get sent out. Emma and Matt send that out within two days, really. So that's that's pretty good. Perfect. Well, they're super inspiring, and, and I think, and so I think much. Dharma's available uh, as an audio as well, so you can just download it as an audio and just uh, listen to that. Oh, fantastic! Yeah, such and wonderful there's philosophy. There's a couple of clips on YouTube. I've done one of uh, Kapitasana and uh, one of Yoga Vajrasana. So Yoga Vajrasana, how to do it when you haven't got somebody else to sit on your knees. Oh, nice. And uh, Kapitasana, um, there's a couple of little tricks in there for people who find it really difficult. So Lovely. I'll look those that, up. That's, nice. that's worth watching, actually. It's very interesting. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, well thank, thank you, you so much, Hamish. Oh, total pleasure. Thank you. I really hope you have a, a lovely rest of your day. And um, you guys got Moon Day tomorrow as well? Yeah. Yeah. We'll, every day is a bit of a Moon Day for us, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's so, pleasure. so lovely to hear you guys. You too, Mr. Hendry. All right. Take care. Ta. cheers cheers me thanks for listening to this episode of finding harmony with me your host harmony slater you can find out more information on my website harmonyslater.com and i look forward to connecting with you again soon Hard wind and the soil